0: I ask you this morning to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter seven, Hebrews chapter seven. And we're going to be reading verses 11 through 28, Hebrews chapter seven, verses 11 through 28. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced Through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later, than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. A basic principle for determining the thrust of any portion of scripture is that of observing words, phrases that recur throughout the text. And in the passage before us, we find at least four repeated words which provide for us somewhat of a hint as to the dominant message of the writer here in this text. There's a word, perfect, and its cognates, which occur some 15 times. There's a word, law, occurring five times. There's a word, perfect, and its cognate, perfection, which occur a a total of three times. And then there's the word another, which can be found three times. And taken together, these words help us to get an idea as to what the writer is seeking to put across to his readers. And in a word, it is this. In fact, this is going to be the overriding idea of this entire sermon. This sermon has only one point. This morning, one point this sermon has, and it is essentially this, we can walk away with this, that the imperfection of the ironic Priesthood, and hence the need for another priesthood, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the sermon about? The sermon is about the imperfection of the Aaronic Priesthood, and hence the need for another priesthood, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the imperfection of the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 11 begins, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And as used in the book of Hebrews, the word perfection is not referring so much to personal sinless perfection. The word perfection, as used in the book of Hebrews, speaks of completeness as it relates to that which fully meets the condition for a right, redeemed relationship with God. Let me say that again. The word perfection speaks of completeness. It speaks of uh, fullness, completeness, as it relates to that which fully meets the condition for a right, redeemed relationship relationship with God. And hence, we find, for example, in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 9 and 14, Hebrews 9 verses 9 and 14 speaks of the perfection and purification of the conscience whereby one is able to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 refers to that single offering by which Christ has, here it comes, perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So even that very verse suggests to us that it's not talking about sinless perfection. But what he's saying there is that Christ's death has perfected those of us who are being sanctified, and it perfected in what sense? Perfected in the sense that it meets fully the requirements, the full requirements, for a reconciled, redeemed relationship with God. So by his opening conditional clause here in verse 11, and here it goes, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, the author is implying here that the Levitical priesthood fell short with respect to fully providing the means of a right-saving relationship with God. If we were to put it in homely terms, what he's saying there is this, that the Levitical priesthood did simply not cut it. It did not cut it. And once again, keep in mind the underlying issue that gave rise to this letter to the Hebrews. As we have said in previous studies, Under severe persecution, these Jewish Christians were on the verge of capitulating from faith in Christ. They were on the verge of returning to Judaism because of the persecutions they had been enduring. And what the writer intends to do throughout this epistle, particularly this passage is to have them understand, is to have them embrace the truth that with all the elaborate, impressive system of sacrifices and rituals, the Levitical priesthood fell short of God's perfect, redemptive purposes. Now we have in verse 11 the first of three main arguments the writer presents as he underscores the imperfection, the incompleteness of the Levitical priesthood. Argument number one is that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect. It fell short of God's ultimate saving purpose as evidenced by a change of priesthood. The very fact that there has been a change of priesthood suggests that the Old Testament system of priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, has become defunct. The rhetorical question we have there in verse 11, nor perfection had been attained. Through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron clearly implies this statement and this question we have here in verse 11 clearly implies the inherent inadequacy of the Levitical priesthood and hence the fact that it it was not intended to be permanent. As you know, the Levitical priesthood, the whole system of rituals and sacrifices there under the Old Testament came to an end when Christ died. And the Word of God tells us in the book of Colossians chapter 2 verse 40 that they were set aside in consequence of Christ atoning death on the cross. And so that the Levitical priesthood was not intended to be a perpetual arrangement is suggested in the B part of verse 11, which alludes to the fact that Christ emerged as another priest. Now there's something we need to note here when the Bible speaks of Christ as another priest. The thing we need to understand is this, that in the Greek language there are two words for another We will not pick up the nuances in our English Bible, but there are two distinct words for another. Let me illustrate for you. If I held up before you this morning two apples, one from here in the United States, nice, luscious apple, and I presented another apple from Jamaica, you have two apples. You have one apple, you have another apple. Here's the point. Even though it's another apple, there has to be a distinction. This is one particular apple. This is, another, this is an apple of another kind. And what the writer is saying here, the particular word that he uses here for another in verse 11 with respect to Christ's priesthood is the Greek word heteron, which specifically means one of a different kind, as distinct from, had he used the word alon, which would mean one of the same kind. Christ, our text is saying, is a priest of a different kind. He's a priest, not of the ironic kind, as it, as were all the Old Testament priests, rather he's a priest of an altogether different kind, a completely different kind of priest. He's a priest not after the order of Aaron, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In fact, this is the point he has been making since chapter 5 and verse 10, chapter 6 and verse 20, and as we saw last week, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, that Christ is in a class by himself when it comes to the matter of being a high priest. He's a priest of a totally different order. In the second place, the writer argues that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect. It fell short of God's intended saving purposes as evidenced by a change of law. As evidenced by a change of law. Here's what he says, verse 12. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. According to the parenthetical statement there, in the A part of verse 11, the Levitical priesthood was integrally tied to the Mosaic Law. And what the writer is simply and straightforwardly saying here is that with the emergence of Christ, a new priest comes the implementation of a new law. So let's see how that works out now. Keep in mind now, under the Old Testament, priesthood was governed by the Mosaic Law. With the emergence of Christ, what we now have is a change with respect to the law of priesthood. Why? Because a new priest is on the scene. The implication here is that in the case of the Levitical priesthood, as it is in the case of Christ's priesthood, Priesthood and law are interconnected. They are inextricably intertwined, they are integral to each other. So watch the line of argument of the writer now. The point of the writer here is this that if the mosaic ritual law was set aside, and we know it was set aside when Jesus died on the cross, Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 21 it would therefore mean that there's no longer a basis for what? The continuation of the Levitical priesthood. Law and priesthood are intertwined. With Christ's death comes the end of the Old Testament rituals, sacrifices, priesthood. And with the emergence of Christ, it therefore means that all those laws regarding priesthood have to go. Now, here's the point. In verses 13 through 21 now, the author illustrates for us the point that with the emergence of a new priest, there has been a shift from the Mosaic law regarding priesthood. A shift, first of all, as it relates to the issue of descent—that That is lineage for priestly service. So whereas the Levitical priesthood, required descent from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, Christ as a priest did not descend from the tribe of Levi. Nor was he a priest for that matter based on any legal requirement as regards bodily or biological descent. As priest, the word of God says here, the writer makes it clear that he descended from the tribe of Judah. And the law said nothing concerning Judah belonging to the priesthood. Furthermore, he comes as a priest not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, verses 13 through 16. Now secondly, regarding Christ's priesthood, not only has there been a change, a change of law with respect to descent for priestly service, but there has been a change of law with regard to duration of priestly service. A change of law with regard to descent, Christ did not descend, as required by Old Testament law, from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron. He arose as a priest completely from a different tribe, the tribe of Judah. And he's a priest of a different kind with a new law because the law changes now with regard to duration of priestly service. Because we are told in verses 16 and 17, here's what the word of God says for Christ has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's the idea here? The idea here is this, that whereas the priests of the Old Testament, all the priests of the Old Testament, died at some point because he's appointed unto man wants to die, Christ as high priest, watch this, the Christ as high priest is indestructible. He is indestructible, that is, he is not subject to death and as such, he continues as a high priest forever. Listen, Christ, our high priest, like all the other priests, died. But the difference was this. He rose triumphantly from the dead. He rose a victor from the dark domain. And what happens today is that he lives forever to reign. Hallelujah, he reigns, the songwriter says. Christ is a priest of indestructible life. So the law changes. We now have priests not dying. We have a priest who is indestructible, who lives forever and forever. In the third place, regarding Christ's priesthood, not only has there been a change of law with respect to dissent for priestly service, and what we would say, duration for priesthood service, but there has been a change of law as regards designation for service. How were the Old Testament priests designated for service? Simply, just by being born into the family of Levi and Aaron. But when it came to Christ's priesthood, here's what the writer says in verses 20-21. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, he's speaking of Christ, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now back in chapter 6 verses 13 and 17, remember that passage we studied with Abram where God swore to Abram an oath. And the word of God tells us that the reason God swore to Abraham was because He wanted to make the promise, we would say, "assurance double sure, so that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Now that's precisely what the Lord Jesus did with respect to Christ his son as priest. Because when he designated Christ our Savior, Christ our high priest, as priest, unlike the situation that obtained in the Old Testament where priests were simply born into the priestly family, God looked at his son and said, look, you are a priest forever. That's not going to change. And the reason why he can be a priest forever, as we saw earlier, was this. It was by virtue of his resurrection life because having died for sins, having risen from the dead, death has no more dominion over him. He lives forever and in consequence of that, he lives forever. He reigns forever as priest in fulfillment of God's sworn promise to him. But this he did not do when he designated Aaron as priest. Never did God swear to Aaron that this would be, his would be an abiding, everlasting priesthood. And as we said, the fact was Aaron's priesthood and the priesthood of all his descendants were temporary. Why? Because unlike Christ, they were all subject to death. Beloved, we have a living Savior. We have a living, reigning Savior. We have a man in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only died, who rose from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God. The Word of God tells us interceding for those he he has redeemed. The writer argues then that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect as evidenced by a... A change of priesthood by B, a change of law. And in the third place, he argues that the Levitical priest was imperfect in that it fell short. It, was, it fell short. Here it comes as evidenced by its inadequacy and ineffectiveness. The Old Testament priesthood is saying here, beloved, was inadequate and it was ineffective. Note first of all, verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. What does the former commandment refer to here in this passage? The former commandment has reference to those ordinances governing the priesthood. Those laws governing the priesthood. For example, as we covered earlier, they had to descend from Levi. Problem was they descended from Levi, they died. These ordinances he's saying in verse 18 had to be repealed, had to be set aside because simply because they were weak and they were useless. In what way were they weak and useless? Look at the A part of verse 19. And here it comes. He says this, for the law, he's talking there about the Mosaic law, for the law made nothing perfect. Let's consider the imperfection of the law which gave rise to the setting aside of the priesthood. We need to look, ask ourselves, why was the law weak and useless? Why was the law, the Mosaic law, good as it is, as it is, right? Right? Paul says the law is good, but in relation to us sinners, it was weak and useless. Here it comes. Number one, the law made nothing perfect, beloved, in that it could not perfectly bring one into a right standing with God. It could not bring one into a right-saving relationship with God. Listen, the whole purpose of the law was not was not to save people from their sins from their defilement from de- from their depravity rather the whole purpose of the law was to show people their sins and how much of a sinner they are the law functioned you see not as a shower to cleanse it functioned rather as a mirror to expose the filthiness they flaws, the ugliness of one's life. Let me pause here to say this. It's a fallacy, you see, for any person to think that if they keep the Ten Commandments, assuming they were able to keep the Ten Commandments, assuming they were able able to do everything that's in the book, that that would put them in good stead with God. Let me say this. If it were possible, listen carefully, if it were possible... That a person never committed an act of sin from this point going forward to 70, 80 years until they die. They never committed an act of sin. They kept the law. Would they go to heaven? No. Because of past sins which have to be atoned for. The wages of sin is death. God had already declared the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Keeping the law never puts one in good stead with God. The law, beloved, is not there to save us. It is there to show us how sinful and rotten we are to the core. You know, a good illustration of the point that is being made here, that the law doesn't save us from our sins, but shows us our sins. There's a commercial I saw some years ago. You, you would know the commercial. So here was this bank robbery in progress. People were lying on the floor with guns pointed at them. And one man appealed to a, this man who from all appearance was the security guard. You remember that little commercial? And the man lying on the floor said, one of the man, men lying on the floor said, listen, why don't you do something? Help us. And he says, the guard stopped, he says. I'm not a security guard. I'm only a security monitor. I only tell you if there's a robbery. And then in this cool, detached fashion, he turned and he, he looked and he said, there's a robbery. <laughs> you know, that's, that's exactly what the law does. The law, beloved, is not there to save us. It's not there to redeem us. In fact, the word of God says the law kills The law threatens vengeance. The law threatens death. And that is why we need Jesus. That is why we need one who himself kept the law perfectly and who not only kept the law perfectly, but he died paying the penalty and in consequence of his dying paying the penalty for sins and his living perfectly the law, the Word of God tells us that the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ is then transferred from the Lord Jesus Christ and is placed to our account whereby when God looks at us, he sees us perfectly Righteous. Why? Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, secondly, the law made nothing perfect in that it could not afford those under its rule perfect access to God. The law was imperfect in that it could not afford those under its jurisdiction perfect access to God. Look at verse 19. Because implied there in verse 19, in the last contrasting portion of verse 19, which reads, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God is that the consequent effect, the consequent effect of the law What with its exposing one's sinfulness, one's wretchedness, kept those under its jurisdiction at a distance from God. Go back to the tabernacle. That was why, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, even though he was set apart as a representative of God's people, he himself could not go in whenever he wanted throughout the year. Only once per year he could go in there. And the rest of the people had to stay outside. Why? Because they were dealing with a holy, dreadful God. A God of wrath and vengeance and justice. And here's the point. With the emergence of Christ, our high priest, he says, look, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, he says we can come confidently to the throne of grace that we may receive help and find grace to help in time of need. In the throne of God, in Christ, the throne of God is no longer for us who are saved, a throne of wrath, a throne of judgment. It has become a mercy seat. It has become a throne of grace. Why? Because of the new law under Christ. If you want to call it the law of grace. (laughs) The law of grace. In the third place, the law made nothing perfect as evidenced by the fact that its priesthood was continually interrupted by death. That's why it had to go. The priests who served under the jurisdiction of the law died. Their tenure of priesthood was interrupted by death. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's what made the law imperfect as far as the priesthood was concerned. Or we could put it the other way around as well. The priesthood was imperfect. Why? Because the law never had the ability to save people from their sins, let alone save them from death. In the fourth place, inadequate and ineffective, the law made nothing perfect as evidenced by the fact that its priesthood was ever subject to the defilement of sin. Its priesthood was ever subject to the defilement of sin. Listen, unlike Christ, our high priest, beloved, unlike Christ, the Levitical priests under the law were but sinful, imperfect men. And you know... If you have a priesthood that is sinful and imperfect, necessarily implied in that is that we cannot be effectively saved. If we are going to be effectively saved, we need a priest without sin. So listen verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27 He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And so, in these verses, our text this morning is demonstrating the fact that the Mosaic law, as well as the priesthood, was woefully inadequate, was utterly weak, was utterly useless as far as redeeming and transforming lives were concerned. Hence, after centuries of the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood had to go. It had to go. It was not sustainable. It could not redeem men from their sins. Now, here's the wonderful news. The wonderful news. And we can say, praise be to God, such a high priest did come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how vastly different, how vastly superior he is as our high priest. Note verses 23 to 25. And for us to understand the connection between verses 21 and 22, he had said in verse 21 that Christ was made a priest by divine oath. God swore, and in consequence of that, he's a priest who lives forever. Here's what the psalmist, here's what I call him the psalmist, but he's really the writer of the Hebrews. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews concludes with respect to what we have in the Lord Jesus, given all that he has said about the Lord Jesus in this passage. Here's what he says. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verse 25, Consequently, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for sins. That is chock full of goodness. Because if we look particularly at verse 25, let's dwell at verse 25 a little bit this morning. That verse is content packed. It's chock full of comfort, of assurance, of blessings. We see the first thing in verse 25 is this. His power to save. His power to save. Listen what the Bible says. He is able he is able to save. The very word, the Greek word that's used there, is related to the idea of power. He has power to save. Why does he have power to save? He has power to save because of the credentials he possesses. He, listen, he's God's son, he's divine. He's the perfect high priest. Never was there a priest like him. He was a priest without sin. This priest did not offer up animal sacrifices, this priest offered up himself. And unlike the Old Testament priests who stood daily ministering in the tabernacle, the Word of God tells us concerning this priest that after he had by himself purged our sins, he was sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's the point, beloved. That man, the God-man, has the power. He has the ability to save. Let me say this. He can save you this morning. Secondly, notice this, the permanence with which he saves. The permanence with which he saves. Here's what the Word of God says. He's able to save, in what respect? To the uttermost. To the uttermost. Now, oftentimes, this is incorrectly, incorrectly rather. This is incorrectly. This particular verse is incorrectly taken to mean... That he's able to save even the vilest, most wretched of sinners. And let me say here, as good as that is, and it is true, that regardless of who a person is, regardless of how wretched, regardless of how filthy, regardless of how stayed with sin, Christ is able to save. But here's the point. That's not what the writer is saying here. The word that is used for uttermost, first of all, means Completely. It's related to the word telos. And telos, as you know, means end. Panteles is the specific word he uses here, And the prefix pan means all. And in saying that Christ is able to save, we could say this. He is able to save to all ends. The idea here is this, he's able to save right to the very end. With the extended meaning, he's able to save completely. Listen, when Christ saves, it's not a half-finished job. May I suggest this? That if ever at all you are saved this morning, if you are saved this morning, you are not half-saved. In as much as we are not yet in heaven, we are fully saved. Because as far as God sees us, we are in Christ Jesus. And when God looks at us, he sees us. And somebody loves to play on the word justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Somebody says this. When God looks at us, it looks at me, it's justified, never sin. And that's, there's truth in that. He's able to save completely. He's able to save right into eternity. That's the idea there. But how do we know he's not talking about the unsaved, even though that's applicable? Look at the people he saves. He says those who draw near to him. The tense here in the Greek, it's a participle and it's a present tense. And the idea here is this that he saves those who are constantly coming to God through him that is not an unsaved person one of the key features of a person who is truly saved that they are ever coming to Jesus you say what does that mean they are ever believing on him, resting on him, looking to him, relying on him, trusting in him, committing their lives to him. That is what the word of God says. He is able, he has the power to save right to the very end Those who are constantly coming to him. What this tells us, beloved, is this, that when it comes to the matter of salvation, we can't sit back in sweet serenity, in sweet complacency, and say, well, I trusted Christ 15 years ago. I trusted Christ 25 years ago. I'm all right. No, no, no. It is those who are ever coming to him, ever looking to him, ever trusting to him. So the point here is this, that true saving faith, as we have said in the past, is not static, but rather it is dynamic. We don't look back at something we did five years ago and are living completely different lives. We are constantly coming to him. And that's why that Christian life is a life of what? Continual repentance, of continual resting. in I hear some people say, you know something, I'm not going to become a Christian, why? Because I'm not going to be able to hold out. That's good theology. <laughs> because you can't. I can't. We are going to slip, we are going to fail, and may I suggest this, we are going to fail at times Miserably. Miserably. So it is a matter of constantly coming to, listen, not to get saved over and over and over. We are saved one time, that's it. But the Christian life, the nature of Christian living, the nature of a saved relationship with Christ is that of constantly trusting and resting in him and him alone for our salvation. Well, we look at the people he saves, we look... At the power he has to save, that we look at the permanence with which he has to save. Look at the premise on which he saves. The premise on which he saves. Here it comes, he always lives to make intercession for them. So you see, once again, he's not talking about the unsaved. That them there are those whom he has saved. He is he's a priest for those whom he has saved, and he's ever living to make intercession for those who are constantly coming to him. If the question is asked, how can we be sure we're going to be eternally saved, then the answer is this, we know so because based on the sworn oath of God, he has been designated priest forever, verse 21, as a result of which he has been made the guarantor of a better covenant, Christ, my beloved, his very presence as, as priest is guarantee we are going to be saved because he can't fail. And what is that better covenant? It's a covenant whereby having a permanent priesthood because he lives forever. Verse 24, he always lives to make intercession for those he saves. Which means that whatever we sin, and even when we fail miserably, we are continually being upheld, we are continually being maintained, we are continually being supported by his priestly work of intercession. Beloved, what wonderful, comforting thought this is. And so the appeal of the author to the Hebrews, and you can see why he's appealing to his readers. And what he's saying to his readers, essentially, yes, I know you're going through the fires of persecution. Yes, I know the temptation. You want to go back to the temple. You want to go back to the priesthood. But you cannot return to a system that's broken. There's a new priest around in the person of the Lord Jesus, and he is the guarantor of a better covenant. His priesthood is a lasting priesthood. It is an everlasting priesthood. You can't go back. That's what he's saying to his readers. As he says in verse 27 of our text, those high priests who had to offer sacrifices daily First, for their own sins and then for the people. Contrast those priests with our Lord Jesus. Having no personal need to offer sacrifice for sin, he offered up himself once for all for everybody's sins, for the sins of all. Regarding the economy of the law, he later states in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9 gifts and sacrifices which were offered could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper because every time they came, year after year, they came daily offering these sacrifices, there was a remembrance of sins. They were reminded of how sinful they were. Also Hebrews 10 One and two, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any conscience of sins? What's the argument there? Christ is the answer. Christ has done everything that the Old Testament Levitical law could not do. And so what do we take away this morning? If you try to keep the law, if you try to be good, you have a lot of work to do. And even after you have done a lot of work, it's useless. Because God isn't going to accept it. It has to be Christ. It has to be Christ who himself not only kept the law, but suffered the penalty of a broken law, the law which you and I broke. And to over 2,000 years ago, beloved, here's a point. He absorbed in his body, he absorbed in his soul the wrath of God that you and I deserved. And the good news of the gospel this morning is this, that if you would look away from yourself, you would look away from your sins, you would come to God, you would say, Lord, I am no good, I'm a sinner at heart. You know me, you you know my sinfulness, but I'm resting in the finished work of Christ. I'm looking to you, Lord, to save me. Here's the point, he will save you. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Won't you do that if you are not saved? And for those of us who are saved, let us revel as it were. Let us rejoice in what we have in our high priest, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name's sake, amen.